Since its creation, this nation has so embraced several of its victorious generals that we elected them as presidents. Up until the American Civil War, most notably George Washington, Andrew Jackson, and Zachary Taylor come to mind. This, in the aftermath of war, is the story of another, a man who, like the president he served, came from the humblest of origins, yet found himself elected to this nation's highest office. A man who, in many ways, found his political campaigns just as challenging perhaps even more so than those while he was in uniform. With a tip of the cap to William McFeely's biography, this is the story of Ulysses S. Grant, who not only was instrumental in winning the American Civil War, but in trying to win the peace that followed. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. It was a Monday, the 10th of April in 1865. The man who had finally cornered Robert E. Lee in the Army of Northern Virginia telegraphed his wife that he would be home in time for dinner. And so, Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant made his way for City Point, Virginia, where Julia and other wives of Grant's staff prepared meals and waited. For ladies filled with great anticipation, the evening glided on playing the piano and waltzing to pass time, eventually gave way to the realization that husbands would not arrive as they had hoped. All disappointingly retired. Julia awoke the next morning to find her husband standing over her. Their train had derailed several times the day before. When she asked, to Richmond, her husband said he would not go to the former Confederate capital. He didn't want to add to the city's distress. Instead, the two traveled to a Washington city that was in the midst of wild celebration. Bonfires, rockets, pealing bells, impromptu speeches. It was Thursday the 13th, and some 1,000 freed slaves gathered on the grounds of Arlington. They sang the Year of Jubilee. Unnoticed, Grant checked into Willard's Hotel then walked over to Army headquarters where the process of demobilization began. The next day, Friday the 14th, he attended President Lincoln's 11 a.m. cabinet meeting. There, the president warmly congratulated him and asked if any news had arrived from Sherman down in North Carolina. No, but Grant was expecting word at any moment. The president then recounted a reoccurring dream— aboard a singular, indescribable vessel that was moving rapidly toward an indefinite shore. As the meeting broke up, Grant accepted an invitation to accompany the president and his wife to the theater that evening. However, later, he sent a message of thanks but declined. Julia wanted to visit their children who were in Philadelphia. It was there, around midnight, 
in the city of brotherly love when by wire the tragic fate of the president was conveyed. The general returned to the Capitol and for the next two days organized arrangements for Lincoln's funeral. He ordered an African-American regiment north from Richmond to serve as honor guard. He also arranged the ceremony held Wednesday on the 19th in the East Room of the Executive Mansion. Grant never forgot Abraham Lincoln and years later wrote, He was incontestably the greatest man I have ever known. Of the new president, Andrew Johnson, Grant knew him only slightly. And then, when Johnson had served as military governor of Tennessee... From those days, Grant had mixed emotions about the man. He sensed the 17th president was vindictive, and in fact, Johnson had indeed complained to Lincoln that Grant's terms to Lee were too lenient. On the night of the 21st, Grant attended Johnson's cabinet meeting that ripped Sherman for his extravagant terms to Joe Johnston down at Durham Station in North Carolina. The new president and Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, were particularly bitter. To defuse the situation, Grant volunteered to go to Raleigh, North Carolina, and went unobtrusively to avoid embarrassing his friend. He arrived unannounced on Monday morning, April the 24th. While there, he wrote Julia. The suffering that must exist in the South the next year, even with the war ending now, will be beyond conception. People who talk now of further retaliation and punishment either do not conceive of the suffering endured already, or they are heartless and unfeeling and wish to stay at home, out of danger, while the punishment is being inflicted. Though the war was, for all practical purposes, over, there was still military business to conduct. In late April, he, the general-in-chief, sent for Major General Philip Sheridan and placed him in command of a 50,000-man force whose express purpose was to take the surrender of all remaining Confederate troops in Louisiana and Texas. Off the record, Sheridan was also told to assist the Juarez government in Mexico in any way to help topple Maximilian's unwelcome French regime there. In June, Grant visited New York City. The last time he was there, back in 1854, he was penniless and broken. Discharged from the United States Army, he had no job then and no future. Now, he entered the city as a national hero. From there, he and Julia traveled up the Hudson River to West Point, where he attended commencement exercises. It was his first visit since he had graduated in 1843. Mingling with his old instructors, they found the great chieftain shy and deferential. Before he left, he called upon 79-year-old Winfield Scott, who greeted him in full military regalia. Scott's completed military memoirs were just out, and he presented Grant with an autographed copy. It included an inscription that read, from the oldest to the greatest general. Grant now moved on to Boston, where a magnificent collection of leather-bound and gilt-paged books were presented. Crowds lined the street of their route, and at every hotel the couple was faded and serenaded. 
Business tycoon and philanthropist William Henry Vanderbilt allowed him the use of his private railroad car. Honorary degrees were granted. The victory tour moved on to Chicago, where he attended a benefit committed to aiding disabled soldiers and sailors. The reception in the Windy City was even greater than in New York City. From there, it was briefly back to Washington City, then came a swing through New England and eastern Canada. On August the 18th, he made his way to his adopted home, Galena, Illinois. Once during the war, he was asked if he had any political aspirations after the conflict. He said no, then mused he wouldn't mind being mayor of Galena, and if so, the first thing he would do would be to put in sidewalks. As the victorious general entered town, he passed under arches of bowers and greenery, and there was a great sign. It read, General, the sidewalk is built. Gifts rolled in. His neighbors presented a house. After the warm reception, he looked forward to a true homecoming. He went to visit his parents, Jesse and Hannah, who were now in Covington, Kentucky. His mother was in her apron when he walked in. She looked up and remarked, Well, Ulysses, you've become a great man, haven't you? And returned back to her housework. As mentioned earlier, gifts rolled in, and they continued, and it seemed that each presenter tried to outdo the other. During this unscheduled tour, the victorious general received 14 horses. Back in Washington City on Friday, October the 6th, more gifts of appreciation rolled in from everywhere. The city of Philadelphia presented the general with a lavish home. Former Major General Daniel Butterfield, representing New York merchants and with ties to the city's financial world, presented Grant with gifts that totaled $104,000. Grant accepted all. The offerings, horses, and houses without question. In his mind, expressions from a grateful nation for a job well done. In truth, no laws were broken or bent, and the gifts were public and above board. But thinking back to his pre-war hard-scrabble existence, so strange that now men with great wealth sought his company. Requesting advice, financier Jay Cook lent an ear to the war hero. Meanwhile, yet another house was given to him. This time it was 205 I Street in northwest Washington City, and $75,000 came with it. It is interesting to note that as soon as all these gifts and wealth came to him, his line between right and wrong seemed to blur. Time would show that the more wealth he accumulated, his common sense decreased. And then there was military reward, for on July the 25th, 1866, Congress established a new rank, and U.S. Grant became the first four-star general in American history. As to the current president, Andrew Johnson, Grant found relations quite different from what he enjoyed with Lincoln. But then again, the times were different. Military campaigns had given way to political campaigns, and Grant was courted constantly by both parties. 
relations about this time did warm with Johnson, and quite honestly, Grant welcomed that, for he wanted to balance the friction he experienced with Secretary of War Stanton. In November, Johnson asked Grant to go on a fact-finding mission to the South. He left on November the 27th to visit Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia, and Tennessee, and returned to Washington City on December the 11th. He reported to the president, I am satisfied that the mass of thinking men in the South accept the present situation of affairs in good faith. Now, that being said, he did believe the military would have to remain in the South for some time. And to Andrew Johnson's dismay, Grant believed the Freedmen's Bureau was necessary to protect ex-slaves. Now, by this time, the battle between Johnson and the 39th Congress had begun, and Grant found himself caught in the middle. Obliged to comply with executive orders, he believed the ultimate responsibility for making policy belonged to Congress. And then, after race riots in Memphis, Grant feared the fruits of Union victory might be slipping away. Aware that Southern whites were defiant, in July of that year, Grant issued General Order No. 44, which instructed all Army commanders in the South to arrest civilians for crimes whenever civil authorities failed to act. In August, and in preparation for the upcoming 1866 midterm elections, Andrew Johnson decided to take his fight, his opposition to the proposed 14th Amendment, to the people. In Johnson's opinion, the amendment threatened white supremacy. For this unprecedented speaking tour, the president brought along his cabinet and asked Grant and naval war hero David Farragut to join him. Tab the president stomp around the circle. Grant did not want to go, but felt obligated since the president had thus far approved so many of his friends' military promotions. And so, reluctantly, he went. It was an unmitigated disaster. In blasting radical Republicans, the 17th president's delivery was often vulgar and on occasion slurred due to alcohol. Time and time again, he alienated citizens, and allies of those in Congress conspired to make things worse. To Johnson's message that the defeated South never left the Union, that they were brothers, plants the radical Republicans hired and put them in the crowd shouted, traitor, liar, it's a lie, shut up. In St. Louis on September the 8th, Johnson asked a crowd, why hang Jeff Davis? Why don't you hang Thad Stevens and Wendell Phillips? In response, some in the crowd hissed, Judas, Judas. To that, Johnson answered barb with barb, and the whole affair degraded into a disgusting presidential display. Grant was embarrassed, humiliated. He believed Johnson a national disgrace. In fact, at one point, Grant and Admiral Farragut hid in the baggage car of Johnson's train. There, Grant smoked endlessly and took to the bottle. Tired of being with a man who, as Grant put it, was attending his own funeral, he pleaded illness. He also told the president he needed to return for family reasons and therefore fled the scene. 
With both back in Washington City, the two had a particularly unpleasant encounter. Johnson, by now, had learned that Grant was opposed to his policy in the South and wished him away from the capital. The president wanted him in Mexico City for a diplomatic mission to feel out Maximilian. In preparation for Grant's absence, the president ordered William Sherman to Washington. Sherman, astutely assessing the situation, backed away. It all came to a head Tuesday, October the 23rd, 1866, at a cabinet meeting. Johnson asked Secretary of State William Seward whether Grant's diplomatic instructions for Mexico were prepared. Seward said they were and began to read them. It was then Grant interrupted to reassert that he did not want to go, and that lit Johnson's fuse. He turned to his Attorney General Henry Stanberry and said, Mr. Attorney General, is there any reason why General Grant should not obey my orders? Grant was on his feet by now, standing before Stanberry could even reply. Staring directly at Johnson, he said, I am an officer of the Army, but I am a citizen also. The service you ask of me to perform is a civil service, and as a citizen, I may accept or decline, and I decline it. No power on earth can compel me to do it. The president remained silent. Grant turned and left the meeting. The man who wore down and cornered R.E. Lee was learning the difference between military and political confrontation. There had been another high-profile face-off between the two. It was back in June of 1865. Down in Virginia, Robert E. Lee learned of a federal grand jury sitting in Norfolk had indicted him for treason. Perplexed, he wrote Grant. From the terms at Appomattox were not all free from molestation. Grant agreed with Lee's interpretation, but the 17th president begged to differ. In fact, Johnson asked, When can these men be tried? Grant answered, Never. Never unless they violate their paroles. The comment ignited a fiery spark. I would like to know by what right a military commander interferes to protect an arch-traitor from the laws. And a steely grand answered, I have made certain terms with Lee, the best and only terms. I will resign my command of the army rather than execute any order directing me to arrest Lee. Nothing else was ever done. When finally the midterm elections were in, in 1866, Johnson and his political supporters took a beating. Both houses of Congress now had a two-third radical Republican majority, enough to override any Johnson veto. In a moment of compassion, Grant urged Johnson to compromise and conciliation, but it fell on deaf ears. By the end of 1866, U.S. Grant was not fully in the camp of the radicals, but Andrew Johnson was most certainly pushing him toward it. In the first months of 1867, Grant found himself favoring Congress's anti-Johnson Reconstruction Acts. And by now, he, though skeptical at one time, was now convinced that the freedmen should not only be citizens, but be allowed to vote. He was also vocal in his sympathy for Native Americans. 
Grant was, by now, an ally of Congress. For Johnson, it was a prickly situation. The president could not dismiss Grant, for he was too popular. But Johnson fretted that the four-star general was going to be his party's next presidential nominee. Despite the chasm, Grant showed deference and great tact in his one-to-one interactions with Andrew Johnson. However, by August of 1867, things turned for the worse in their official relationship. In an effort to weaken Reconstruction officials, he told Grant he would remove radical ally Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, and the president asked Grant to fill the position. To complicate the situation, Stanton refused to step down. Undaunted, Johnson suspended him and asked for the office and its files be turned over to Grant. Caught once again in the middle of yet another political crossfire, Grant followed executive orders and agreed to take over the office on a temporary basis. The president now went after Union Reconstruction military officers Major Generals Philip Sheridan and Daniel Sickles. Grant refused to remove them and called Johnson's hand by saying the move could only be interpreted as an attempt by the president to defeat the laws of Congress for restoring peace. Grant dragged his feet, and by autumn of 1867, a frustrated Johnson once again sought by now Lieutenant General William Sherman to supersede Grant, and once again, Sherman refused to be party to the political sparring. Relations between Johnson and Grant were at their worst. Except for formal communication, all dialogue between the two ceased. To put it mildly, the two detested one another. On Monday, January the 13th, 1868, the Senate, by a 33-6 to vote, voted to abide by the Tenure of Office Act and reinstate Edwin Stanton. A relieved Grant gladly gave up his role as temporary Secretary of War. Of course, we know Andrew Johnson was impeached, and during the trial, Grant remained a passive observer. He was called to testify, but did so without any show of animosity. On May the 20th, 1868, four days after Johnson's narrow acquittal, the Republican Party met in Chicago. Some 8,000 gathered in Crosby's Opera House. It was there Major General John Blackjack Logan of Illinois rose to place U.S. Grant's name in nomination. The convention erupted, and the decision was unanimous. Back in Washington City, Grant was working at his desk when Secretary of War Stanton walked in and said, I've come to tell you that you have been nominated by the Republican Party for President of the United States. Grant looked up, took the news in silence, then impassively accepted Stanton's congratulations. He accepted the nomination by letter the next day. In that letter, he endorsed the Republican platform, promised to execute the laws, and closed with a classic line that would be repeated. Let us have peace. For the office, Grant refused to campaign. He knew he was a poor public speaker, and so remained at his post as general-in-chief while Congress was in session. When they adjourned, he joined Sherman and Sheridan for an inspection tour of forts out west. He went as far west as Denver, 
and then back to Galena. And that is where he was on Election Day, November the 3rd. On that day, he went to the polls with his neighbors and voted for Elihu Washburn for Congress, his political benefactor, and for every Republican on the ballot. For president, he deliberately refrained from voting for himself. At 10 that evening, he walked to Washburn's home where telegraph machinery had been set up to follow the returns. Throughout the evening, he was calm and seemed more interested in a card game than the numbers. By 2 a.m., the wire brought news of victory. He walked back to his house where he told Julia, then addressed a crowd of anywhere from 50 to 200 from his doorstep. To them, his message was concise. The responsibilities of the position I feel, but I accept them without fear. The official returns show that U.S. Grant carried 26 of 34 states. His electoral victory was 214 to 80 over the New Yorker and Democratic candidate Horatio Seymour. The two-thirds Republican majority was maintained in the Senate, and the majority in the House increased to four-fifths. Remarkably, both Republicans and many Democrats were pleased for Grant stood for sound money, sound government economy, and restoration of the South under Congressional Reconstruction. Two days later, he began his journey back to Washington City. He was accompanied by his family and three military aides, and like Lincoln, under the cloud of several reported threats of assassination. He took no real note of them. The 18th president arrived just after noon on November the 7th. There was no ban, no welcome party. A public hack was hailed, and they made their way to their house on I Street. Until the inauguration, he, as general-in-chief, still had a job to do. At 46 years of age, he was the youngest elected to the office of the presidency at that time. Not since George Washington had a man been elected who was so little beholding to the political powers of the day. And yet, he had been extremely involved with so many issues of the day. He had helped to demobilize the world's largest army. He maintained order in the western Great Plains. He, from afar, helped to overthrow Maximilian in Mexico and ushered some four million freedmen into a new era. Now he prepared for his administration in the same methodical way he moved on Vicksburg back in 1863. And like them, he told no one his plans and kept the press at arm's length. At 10.40 a.m. on a cold and rainy Thursday, March 4, 1869, the 18th President of the United States rode in a carriage to his inauguration on Capitol Hill. For the then third and last time in American history until Donald Trump, an outgoing president, did not accompany his successor. Some say Grant refused to ride with an outgoing Andrew Johnson. Others reported that Johnson said he was too busy to get away. Regardless, at 12.17 p.m., the Marine Band played the president's march, and Grant, in a finally tailored black suit, walked down the steps of the East Portico to take the oath. He wrote his own inaugural address and consulted no one about its content. It was 1,200 words, still one of the briefest 
and it was not heard beyond the first couple of rows. Fully half of it concerned fiscal matters, payment of the national debt, collection of revenue, and cutting back government spending. He spoke of protecting citizens home and abroad and would deal fairly with other nations. He reserved his most heartfelt passages for African Americans and Native Americans. In fact, he was the first to take up the cause for American Natives in his inaugural address. He made it clear he supported black suffrage. While positive reviews rolled in about his address, he consulted no one about his cabinet appointments, not even those he considered. For example, Adolph Borey of Philadelphia, who contributed more than $50,000 to one of Grant's homes, learned of his selection as Secretary of the Navy while reading the newspaper. The next day, the new president announced his cabinet. He selected them based upon their potential personal chemistry rather than political clout. They were men he would be comfortable with, who could manage their offices and carry out his bidding cheerfully. It is true the new president did find political appointments for two dozen of his relatives. The man who had previously voted in only one election now came to power without a great cause and no personal involvement in any issue. The U.S. Senate took less than two hours to approve his nominees for cabinet. Though there were a few personal snafus filling all the cabinet posts, by March the 11th, his cabinet was settled. Among his nominations for a post, there was one interesting nomination submitted to the Senate. It wasn't a cabinet post, but the Office of Surveyor of Customs at the Port of New Orleans. That man was an old friend former Confederate General James Longstreet, and another for Bureau of Indian Affairs, his longtime aide, Eli S. Parker, who was a Seneca Indian. His wife, Julia, became the most popular first lady since Dolly Madison. Joining them in the executive mansion were the youngest children, Nellie and Jess, and Julia's 83-year-old father, who remained an unreconstructed Democrat. Ulysses Jr. was soon to leave for Phillips Exeter Academy, and 19-year-old Fred was already at West Point. Since Lincoln's assassination, there was now a secret service, but Grant dismissed them. It was not unusual for him to strike out and walk the streets of the Capitol alone. His routine? Up at 7 to read the Washington and New York papers. At 8.30, he joined Julia and the rest of the family for breakfast. Afterward, he took a stroll around the neighborhood, then was at his office by 10. Minus lunchtime, he worked until about 3 p.m. Cabinet meetings were at 2 p.m. on Tuesdays and usually lasted two hours. In late afternoon, there would be a drive in an open carriage or another stroll. It was not unusual for him to drop in on friends unexpectedly. Though there was exercise each day, he quickly added some 50 pounds to his 5'8 frame. As far as his role as president, he approached it as if he were still in military command, as general-in-chief, but there would be some differences. During the war, if things did not go as planned, he improvised. Not here, for problems lingered. His military command might create debate, but his word was final. Now, there would have to be negotiation, 
compromise. Here, he quickly learned alliances were transitory. Criticism, backbiting, and second-guessing were constant. Every decision pleased one party and disappointed another. Early on, one decision to change the organization of the War Department alienated one of his dearest and best friends, William Sherman. Though they remained friends, the rift was enough to rob their friendship of its warmth. As Sherman put it, he is a mystery to me, and I believe he is a mystery to himself. In the spring of 1869, another wartime associate dropped by. It was Robert E. Lee, who journeyed to Baltimore to seek funds for a railroad into Lexington, Virginia. Before Lee returned, he got word to stop by Washington City. He arrived Saturday, May 1st, and caught a quick glimpse of Arlington. Perhaps he wondered what might have been. He met President Grant at the executive mansion. Brought into Grant's office, they shook hands. Lee mentioned the purpose of his Baltimore trip, and Grant joked, You and I, General, have had more to do with destroying railroads than with building them. The intended joke fell flat. There was awkward silence. Left alone for 15 minutes, they stood, shook hands, and the reunion ended. They would never see one another again. The college president returned to Lexington. Of the meeting, Lee never mentioned it. Grant noted only a detail or two. His first real clash while in office resulted when he wanted repeal of the Tenure of Office Act, the congressional approval of appointing and removing cabinet and government officials. His handling of the issue showed a side to Grant's presidential style that most historians fail to note. Rather than the manipulated babe in the woods as he is usually portrayed, Grant handled the issue with political savvy. When the Senate balked at the repeal, Grant let it be known that he would therefore follow and enforce the act to the letter. He would not remove any of Andrew Johnson's appointees and would fill only offices that were vacant. That meant Congress would be denied the one thing they absolutely craved, patronage. There would be no new postmasters, pension clerks, or custom collectors until the Senate came round. Grant's clever handling got what he wanted, and in only three weeks. One crisis over, another came in September 1869. Financiers Jay Gould and Jubilee Jim Fisk moved to corner of the gold market. They believed they had duped President Grant into unwitting assistance for that purpose, but the president figured out their plan, and meeting face-to-face -face with his Secretary of the Treasury, George Bowell, president instructed, if gold market prices continue to rise, sell government gold. That took place Friday, September the 24th, and the effect was immediate. Grant saw through the ploy and took direct action to break Gould and Fisk gold ring. And by doing so, he saved the country from financial panic. The move was the first instance of the United States government's direct intervention in bringing order to the nation's economy to its marketplace. Yet there was an economic fallout over the next few months, and although Grant himself was blameless, it is true that some of Grant's political cronies, in fact, half his staff, 
made money. More scandals would dog him over Western land policy, banking, railroad, and whiskey rings. And that being said, we should know that although he rarely met a businessman he did not trust and did accept hospitality and gifts from rich men, he never allowed them an advantage. A word or two about his foreign policy, which is usually overlooked. That is due to historians whose southern slant attributed to their portrayal of a bumbling, naive man groping his way through two terms. Although Grant stubbed his political toe over hoping to annex Santo Domingo, he was able to keep the nation out of war with Spain over Cuba, settle the Alabama claims with Great Britain, improved relations with the British government, and established a precedent for arbitration in international disputes. One might easily compare his diplomatic tactics and savvy with Dwight D. Eisenhower. It should also be noted that his constant foil in diplomatic matters was Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner. They constantly battled over policy. Once Grant was told that Sumner, who was on the verge of his sixth decade, did not believe in the Bible, to which Grant replied he was not surprised, for, well, he didn't write it. In other issues of the day, President Grant wanted civil service reform, but several key senators balked. Again, the almighty power of patronage damned any chance for action. It would take President James Garfield's assassination in July of 1881 before civil service reform would take root. Where he did bring about change was in the treatment of Native Americans. Grant felt a romantic kinship with them. He sympathized with their plight. His policy toward them was a peace policy rather than bloodshed. He truly wanted to give them full membership into American society and did this knowing full well that the 14th Amendment had been intentionally written to exclude Native Americans. Grant's path on the issue shocked both Sherman and Sheridan. Through Eli Parker, he had Quakers appointed as Indian agents, believing that their religious conviction would make them honest and caring officials. But over time, even many of them fell to the temptations of greed and corruption. Meanwhile, Great Plains clashes between whites and Native Americans continued. After the Baker Massacre in June 1870, in which 173 Native Americans were cut down, all but 15 women and children, outraged Wendell Phillips blasted, I only know the names of three savages upon the plains, Colonel Baker, General Custer, and the head of it all, General Sheridan. It is worth noting an interesting exchange between Bureau of Indian Affairs head Eli Parker and one of the Great Plains chiefs, Little Swan. Parker asked if Little Swan had become chief because he had killed a great many people. Yes, replied the Native American, the same as the great white father in the White House. Despite all this tension, progress, and setbacks, Grant continued to believe in his peace policy, in human equality, which, like the freedmen, deserved government protection. The June 1876 battle at Little Bighorn, in Grant's view, was wholly unnecessary and did nothing to change his dislike and lack of respect for George Custer. 
In short, despite the president's efforts at reform and equal protection under the law, his peace policy fell victim to racial bigotry, corruption, greed, and incompetence. One unintentional result for his failed policy was his shared belief with many churches that the Plains Indians should abandon their traditional Indian ways, their culture, and embrace Christianity. Still, his policy was, for the 1870s, progressive and humanitarian. Quite simply, U.S. Grant wanted to assimilate, not to destroy. That brings us to his views on the freedmen and Reconstruction. Again, many paint Grant as a passive president who cared little for the welfare of some four million freedmen and the prostrate South. That assumption is in error. Under his style of presidential leadership, he needed a strong attorney general and secretary of war to enforce national policy and protection. And he got just that from, respectively, his attorney general, the 49-year-old Georgian Amos Ackerman, and his 40-year-old secretary of war, William Worth Belknap. Both were committed to enforcing the law. Both wanted to protect those that could not protect themselves and combat terrorism in the form of the KKK. Grant was so committed to using the power of the federal government to break the KKK's reign of terror that in March of 1871, he and his entire cabinet made a very rare visit to Capitol Hill to push and rally support for what became the Ku Klux Klan Act. With the act's passage in April of 1871, Grant followed through when he empowered the military to break up the terrorist organization. In October of that year, he proclaimed a condition of lawlessness in nine upland counties in South Carolina, suspended the writ of habeas corpus, and ordered in military reinforcements to put the organization on the defensive. By 1872, he had enforced the law to such a point that the KKK's power was broken. There was such a dramatic decline in violence and vigilant protection of civil rights that by 1872, in the national elections, African Americans voted in record numbers, prompting several historians to note that the election, that election, may have been the fairest and most democratic presidential election in the South up until 1968. Still, Grant's efforts and intentions, despite them, there were those around him, including those that had been in the war with him, who filled their pockets. By 1872, the Republican Party, which once championed civil rights and the Union, now seemed on an unprecedented mission to reap personal gain. His hands were clean. Yes, he accepted gifts, but never bribes. Yes, he trusted businessmen, but never allowed them unfair advantage or access. In short, if he had a fault, it was that he trusted the friends he put into positions of power. Bureau of Indian Affairs head Eli Parker blamed Julia, Grant's wife, for his falling under the influence of the moneyed. His old friend Sherman blamed Washington City itself. But the crass greed was so bad that by 1872, Grant's own party split. Charles Sumner, Jacob Cox, and Carl Schurz broke with the president and formed the Liberal Republican Party. They met and nominated Horace Greeley for president. 
the almost 61-year-old newspaper editor and publisher, curiously called for amnesty for all former Confederates, promoted local self-government, and condemned Grant's use of arbitrary measures in the South. With that platform, and in a very strange set of affairs, the National Democratic Party also nominated Greeley. Once again, Grant refused to campaign. However, at the core of the matter in the election, most Northern voters still were simply not ready to trust white Southerners or Democrats. On Election Day, November the 5th, 1872, Grant won re-election in a landslide. He received 56% of the popular vote the highest proportion of any presidential candidate between Andrew Jackson in 1828 and Theodore Roosevelt in 1904. He carried every state north of the Mason-Dixon line in eight of 11 states in the old Confederacy. The Republican Party also retained a two-thirds majority in both houses. Greeley's untimely death, November the 29th, 1872, ensured that the electoral count echoed the popular vote. And so, the nation's war hero would have a second term. It meant another term under a president who was told that criticism was solely political. For him personally, the win gave great satisfaction. It was vindication, his greatest moment. His popularity was at its apex. But like FDR in 1936 and Reagan in his second term, a degree of hubris led to mistakes, and mistakes led to poor administration, corruption, and scandal. In fact, it led to one, if not the greatest, chapters of corruption in this nation's history. Later, someone asked what distressed Grant the most about politics, and to that he answered, to be deceived by those I trusted. And he was deceived often. By the time of the midterm November elections in 1874, the Democrats gained control of the House of Representatives for the first time since 1856. They gained 10 seats in the Senate. Times were indeed a-changing. There was Southern resentment for Grant's interventions in the South, and Northern voters, quite honestly, lost interest in the plight and protection of the African-American. In 1876, at the conclusion of a tainted administration, he wrote a strange letter, a farewell letter to Congress. In it, he admitted he came to high office without political experience, that he had made mistakes, that he wished he had done better, that he meant well. The 18th president had been no match for the corruption, ruthlessness, brutal materialism, and self-seeking of those serving him and the nation. One observer wrote, I like Grant, but was struck with the pathos of his face, a puzzled pathos, as of a man with a problem before him of which he does not understand the terms. Indeed, when historians ranked the presidents in a C-SPAN survey back in 2000, Grant was ranked 10th worst. Fourteen years later, in a poll taken by U.S. News and World Report, Grant was again taken to task on corruption, his worst marks among several areas of presidential consideration. Corruption that was unprecedented, although, again, he was never a beneficiary. 
times after a civil war, and his delegation style of leadership definitely contributed. As he put it himself, my failures have been errors in judgment, not of intent. His stock has recently risen thanks to his excellently written presidential memoirs and a new interpretation of Reconstruction history. For example, Grant, as we have noted, is credited for his aggressive prosecution of reform measures in the South. He is applauded for his support and enforcement of the Ku Klux Klan Act and Civil Rights Act of 1875. From the Southern whites' perspective, those two laws were controversial and historically only produced short-lived gains for freedmen, but it was a start in a difficult time, and his effort toward African Americans and Native Americans is nothing short of honorable, and at that time, even brave. Add to those superlatives, he was remarkably calm, even-handed, held a deeply founded respect for the law, and was again personally honest. His latest ranking... A 2021 C-SPAN survey of historians now ranks him as the 20th best U.S. president. And judging him during his time, of the 14 presidents from 1849 through 1901, Grant is ranked third best. Only William McKinley and, of course, Abraham Lincoln are ranked higher. On Thursday, May 27, 1875, the Republican Party in Pennsylvania formally nominated him for an unprecedented third term, but he said no. Meanwhile, the country was trying to find its financial footing after the Panic of 1873 and another scandal. The Whiskey Ring broke out in early 1875, and there was another, land fraud in the Department of the Interior. While waves of scandal crashed over his ship of state's bow, he remained at the wheel, cool-headed, composed. In fact, it was future U.S. President James Garfield who remarked, His imperturbability is amazing. I am in doubt whether to call it greatness or stupidity. The Republican Convention met in Cincinnati on June 14, 1876. Though there were some, like the Pennsylvanians, that suggested a third term, Grant stayed on the sidelines and said nothing. And so the party turned to another Ohioan, another Northern Civil War general, Rutherford B. Hayes. Of course, we remember the 1876 election as one of the most controversial, on the same stage of controversy as the 2000 presidential election. During the political mayhem and backroom dealings that that election brought, Grant remained calm and, to his credit, nonpartisan. When he did turn over the office to Hayes, he commented, I feel like a boy getting out of school. It was Garfield again who noted, No American has carried greater favor out of the White House than this silent man who leaves it today. The Grants didn't vacate the executive mansion until late in the afternoon of the inauguration. Quite honestly, they didn't want to leave. Perhaps now they would return to the little house in Galena that had been given to them. Then there was the gift house on I Street in Washington City, but the $6,000 pension wasn't enough to maintain them and the house, so the Grants decided to travel the world at his own expense 
and go as long as their savings totaling $85,000 held out. It would be he, Julia, younger son Jesse, a maid, manservant, his first secretary of the Navy, Adolf Borey, Borey's nephew, who was a doctor, and 37-year-old John Russell Young, who wrote for the New York Herald. It would be through his eyes, his articles, that the country would, so to speak, travel with the 18th president and his entourage. And they were indeed eager to follow the man who was still quite popular. They left Thursday, May 17, 1877, with no fixed plans, no fixed itinerary. They would be gone for two and a half years and would be seen as living examples of American simplicity and democracy. The trip allowed more people to see him than anyone before in history. First and foremost, he was seen and greeted not as a president, but as a generalissimo, the hero of Appomattox, the most famous soldier of his era, a military giant of a gigantic nation that was just beginning to flex its great muscle. There were hundreds of thousands of people and dignitaries who compared him to Hannibal. And so they headed for Liverpool. They stayed in Scotland's Castle of Argyle. Then south to London where dinners, balls, and receptions were given by the likes of the Prince of Wales, the son of the Duke of Wellington, and other royalty. Queen Victoria had the Grants' overnight guest at Windsor Castle. Across the channel, they moved to France, where the Marshal President called him one of the three greatest soldiers in history. He failed to mention who the other two were, but no matter. To Belgium and southern Germany, where Wagner personally played for them. It was there he met with the first Chancellor of Germany, Otto von Bismarck. And with Bismarck, amidst all the martial splendor, Grant remarked, The truth is, I am more of a farmer than a soldier. Down in Pompeii, and awed by natural wonders, authorities excavated a house for him. Amidst the ruins, they found a loaf of bread. He was entranced by architectural masterpieces and absolutely loved art galleries and museums. Of course, he was invited to review countless numbers of troops, but declined to do so as much as possible. The trip moved to Palermo, where they boarded the USS Vandalia on Christmas Eve and took a Mediterranean cruise. On board, they passed Stromboli, where much earlier, sirens tempted another Ulysses. Julia reminded him, however, that this time, Penelope was beside him. By now, the trip was feeding on itself. Each host had to outdo the former. In Alexandria, the Kedive put his palace in flat-bottomed steamer at Grant's disposal. For three weeks, they coursed the Nile with the director of the National Museum at their beck and call. They rode camels to see the statues of Egypt's founder, Memnon. Next, the Grants traveled to the Holy Land. After Hapha and before Jerusalem, they were shown where David collected his stones to slay Goliath. From there, they journeyed to Constantinople and Athens, where the Parthenon was bathed in the light of 1,000 fires. In Italy, the Grants met King Umberto, and had an audience with Pope Leo XIII, who blessed the diamond cross Julia was wearing. It had been Grant's gift to her 
on their 25th wedding anniversary. And then to Venice, where, as the story goes, apocryphal, no doubt, Grant supposedly commented, what a nice city it would be if they would only drain the streets. He liked industrial plants, railroad stations, loved to walk the streets. The tour continued to Milan, then Amsterdam. Back in Germany, the Grants dined with the crown prince and princess and again visited Bismarck at his palace. It was an extraordinary visit, for he walked over to meet the German chancellor. No coach, no team of prancing horses, no escorts, no bodyguards. The Europeans were simply amazed at his simplicity. Then to Copenhagen and Stockholm, where every significant point and island in the harbor was topped with an American flag. Russia was next. The fountains of St. Petersburg played for them. They were guests on the Tsar's yacht and sailed amidst the Imperial Russian Navy. Then on to Moscow, Warsaw, dinner with ruler Franz Joseph in Vienna, with Alfonso XII in Spain, and a reception in their honor graciously given by the king and queen of Portugal. Their itinerary included a stop in Cordova, Seville, Valencia, Barcelona, and Paris. European winter was around the corner, so the Grants headed south to Marseille, and once again sailed the Mediterranean for the portal to the east, the Suez Canal. In Bombay, they rode elephants, and in Agra, visited the Taj Mahal. In Calcutta, policemen only 10 feet apart and stretching for a mile served as an honor guard. Elephants lifted their trunks and trumpeted as cannon after cannon thundered. Everywhere they visited, the royalty expected a regal presence. And all they got was simplicity from a short, chubby man with a stubby wife. To Burma, Singapore, Bangkok, Saigon, Hong Kong, and up the Canton River, where Cantonese Viceroy Lin Kuan Yew served up an 86-course meal. Then Macau, Shanghai, and on July the 4th, 1879, the island of Japan, where ministers usually delivered full reports on their knees and prostrate to the ground. Emperor Mutsuhito stunned his court when he received Grant with a handshake. From Japan, the family ended the tour on Wednesday, September the 3rd, 1879, when they boarded an eastbound ship headed for San Francisco. Once there, they took a side trip to Oregon, where he, seemingly a lifetime ago, lonely and financially strapped, pointed out to Julia where he had planted potatoes. On December the 16th, 1879, they reached Philadelphia. They had been on tour since May of 1877. Though gone for two and a half years, Wanderlust soon returned, and the Grants hit the road again visiting Cuba and Mexico. When they returned, they learned that at the Republican Convention in Chicago, New York's Roscoe Conkling had nominated Grant as the party's candidate for the 1880 election. When asked what state Grant hailed from, Conkling crowed, he hails from Appomattox. Remarkably, Grant received 304 votes of the needed 370 on the first ballot. Julia pleaded with him to go to the convention floor. 
but he would not, and remarked he would rather cut off his right hand than beg. On the 36th ballot, James A. Garfield received the nomination. Now 58, Grant's political career was over. Wealthy men in New York took up subscriptions and bought the couple a townhouse at 3 East 66th Street, just off 5th Avenue, gave him an income and made available some railroad bonds. After so many years of public service, he adjusted to private life poorly. Looking for financial opportunity, he and his son, Ulysses Jr., Buck, decided to form a brokerage firm with Wall Street magician Ferdinand Ward. The two anteed up $100,000 apiece. Ward contributed $200,000. All of Grant's family kicked in. The firm of Grant and Ward set up shop at Wall Street and Broadway, and from 1881 to 1884, it was boom time. Some investors reaped dividends that reached 40% annually. Ward's magic made grants worth some $2.5 million. Yet some old allies were concerned. Sherman thought it undignified that Grant seemed only to want to talk about money. Sheridan thought it bewildering. Maybe they knew something. On the 20th anniversary of the beginning of Grant's Overland Campaign, May 4, 1884, Ward let it be known he needed money to keep a bank afloat that held $660,000 of Grant and Ward's holdings. Ward said he had raised $250,000 and asked Grant if he could raise $150,000. Grant went to William Henry Vanderbilt of the Republic Be Damned fame, and although the Commodore was lukewarm to the bank and brokerage, he agreed to lend Grant the money. Two days later, a Tuesday, May 6th, Grant walked into the office and found a panicked son. Buck blurted, Grant and Ward have failed. Ward has fled. The Wall Streeter had played a colossal swindle. It had all been a pyramid scheme. Even the original investments, the $200,000 Ward was supposed to have raised, was fraudulent. Financial obligations exceeded $16 million. Assets totaled $57,000. When Grant heard the news, his expression never changed. He turned slowly, walked back to his office. It was there he slumped into his chair and gripped its arms. I have made it the role of my life to trust a man long after other people gave up on him. But I don't see how I can trust any human being again. He then buried his face into his hands. He walked home that evening with $80 in his wallet. Julia had $130 at the house. He could not cover the firm's debt, but he made personal debts a matter of personal honor. For example, Vanderbilt offered to waive his debt, but Grant refused. To cover that personal debt, he sold ornaments from hats he wore at Belmont and Fort Donaldson. He sold 
shoulder straps from uniforms he wore at Vicksburg and Petersburg. He sold a gold model of the table used at the McLean House, a pen used to write orders, 40 gold medals, swords, gifts collected from around the world, even his commissions from second lieutenant to four-star general. True to his word and to his friends, Grant made good every one of his personal debts. Ward was located, tried, found guilty, and sent to jail for 10 years. The jaws of financial disaster opened to swallow Grant and his family. And then, incredibly, a unique offer arrived. Century Magazine commissioned him to write four Civil War articles and would pay him $500 for each. His first effort was about Shiloh and was nothing more than a rehash of his official report. It had no feel, no insight. His rewrite was more personal. It included stories, anecdotes. He began the project uncertain about his ability to be a writer, but found he enjoyed it, and it showed in the Shiloh article. Building on its popularity, the magazine wanted Grant to write his memoirs and made an offer. At the same time, Samuel Clemens, who was about to publish Huckleberry Finn, heard of Grant's offer. The magazine's proposed advanced and was appalled. As he put it, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Clemens traveled to Grant's New York City townhouse and countered. Century Magazine offered $30,000. Twain offered an advance of $50,000 with a promise of royalties. To Twain's offer to publish his memoirs, Grant agreed. Yet, he refused the full $50,000 advance. He collected only 20000 of it and began work on what would become the personal memoirs of U.S. Grant. In the summer of 84, while in the middle of gathering information and initial writing, he bit into a peach and felt excruciating pain at the back of his throat. Told to see a doctor, he dallied. Finally, on October the 22nd, 1884, he went. Maybe he had been in denial. To his query, is it cancer? He was told, the disease is serious, epithelial in character, and sometimes capable of being cured. Its location made surgery out of the question. By mid-February of 1885, the ulceration had spread and the tumor was in the process of growing from the size of a pea to that of a plum. By late February, he suffered frightful pain in one ear. The cancer was spreading. By early March, there was nausea, headaches, sleeplessness, the lump an angry scarlet. To dull the pain, hydrochlorate of cocaine was painted on his ulcerated throat. It was tough to get liquids down. The agony so great that once he croaked in pain, if you could imagine what molten lead would be like going down your throat, this is what I feel when I am swallowing. Word leaked out. The March 1st, 1885 New York World headline read, Grant is dying. Thus began the scheming and intrigue of reporters who vied to be the first to report that the general had died. 
One fastened a cord around the ankle of a house butler, with the other end dangling out the window for easy access. Another arranged for a series of skyrockets to be fired from the Grant townhouse, which would trigger more down the block. Those rockets would prompt the extras already printed. One reporter seduced a housemaid across the street so he had visual access from an upstairs window. Collectively, those reporters called themselves members of the 50 Million Club. That was how many in the country who would want to know. On the first day of April, Reverend John Philip Newman was called in to baptize an unconscious Grant. All thought death was imminent. But a hypodermic of brandy injected into his unconscious form revived him. Miraculously, his condition improved. Still the bulldog, still unwilling to acknowledge defeat. Like a military campaign, he continued to work on his memoirs while death literally tugged at his sleeve. On more than one occasion, he read about his death in a newspaper finishing an obituary written before its time, he would set the paper aside and then return to work on his book. On Decoration Day, a forerunner of our Memorial Day, then observed about the time of the anniversary of Appomattox, the 7th New York Regiment came to Grant's townhouse to serenade. Grant heard the music, showed himself at a window. A crowd had accompanied the regiment, and those who looked in saw a stooped, shrunken figure in black skullcap, dark dressing gown, and gray, pinched face. When they first saw him, there was a collective, audible gasp. Undaunted, the seventh colonel lifted his sword in salute. While children were being lifted to see him and men took off their hats, the warrior managed a weak, thin smile, slowly waved, and withdrew from the window. By now, each day was torture. If he tried to rest by lying down, saliva and bloody mucus flowed down the back of his throat and strangled him, so he constantly sat upright in a leather armchair. He lived on mutton and beef broth mixed with milk and eggs. To drink the concoction down was agonizing. Coughing fits caused him to hawk his throat, constantly clearing his mouth of bloodied saliva. The bulge in his neck was so great he could no longer completely open his mouth. Morphine was a constant companion. His arms and legs pitted from the needles. Still somehow, unbelievably, he might write or dictate to a stenographer 10,000 words a day. He literally held off death with one hand as he wrote with the other. While he was awake, he remained stoic. It was when he slept that one could see the sheer agony. By June of 1885, it had become too hot in the city. So on Tuesday, the 16th of that month, a withered U.S. grant shuffled through Grand Central Station. The entourage of those around him boarded Vanderbilt's private car and headed for Sarasota Springs and Anthony Joseph Drexel's cottage atop Mount McGregor. Train's route took it through Poughkeepsie, Rhinecliffe, and Hudson. As it passed West Point, Julia pointed. He smiled. 
Just north of Albany, at a bend in the river, the train briefly halted. Beside the track, there was a flagman shanty, and it was directly below Grant's window. The general saw the structure and watched as the flagman emerged. That flagman approached the car and looked right into Grant's eyes. Slowly, he waved an arm that was missing its hand. And then he said, Thank God I see you alive, General Grant. The train started to move, but the flagman followed. He glanced at his war wound and said, I lost that with you at the wilderness, and I'd give the other one to see you well. Inside, Grant's lips tightened. His hand moved quickly to his hat, and he removed it while nodding to the veteran. Everyone in the car was crying. Their destination was 12 miles from Syracuse, a two-story cottage that faced east toward Vermont's Green Mountains. He would sit on the front porch and continue to work, to write. He could no longer talk. Guards kept the curious at a distance, but ladies bowed. Men removed their hats, and children sang. In his chair, sleep now barely stretched for more than an hour. To ease his pain, coats of cocaine were painted on the back of his throat. Daily, there were four or five injections of morphine in his arms, legs, and chest. And despite the living hell, on Thursday, July 16th, one month after his arrival at Mount McGregor, Ulysses S. Grant finished his memoirs. He wrote, It seems that man's destiny in this world is quite as much a mystery as it is likely to be in the next. I never thought of acquiring rank in the profession I was educated for, yet it came, with two grades higher prefixed to the ranks of general officers for me. I certainly never had either ambition or taste for a political life, yet I was twice President of the United States. I now have written a book. I have already too many trades to be proficient in any. Often groggy and in great pain, in less than a year, he had written some 275,000 words. His memoirs sold one-half million, twice as many as his publisher Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. One year later, Clemens presented Julia the largest royalty check ever written at that time, $200,000, and there would be more. Over 300,000 sets were sold, and royalties totaled $450,000. Those checks restored his family's financial security. His work was a financial and literary success. He had finished his next-to-last campaign. There was only one more, and that was life itself. Upon completion, he noted... There is nothing more I should do to it now, and therefore I am not likely to be more ready to go than at this moment. On Monday the 20th of July, he wanted to visit a nearby gazebo. To enter it, he had to rise and walk three steps. It was too much. He came back pale, faint. The next day was beastly hot, fits of hiccuping, too weak to hold his cane. That evening, he wanted out of the prison that was his chair. They put him in bed, 
It was there around 8 a.m. on Thursday, July 23rd, withered to less than 100 pounds. U.S. Grant finally surrendered. Like Robert E. Lee, who had passed 15 years earlier, Grant was 63. The family decided to take him back to New York City by train. All along the route, pennies were laid on the track for mementos. There was a stop in Albany and a great procession. Back in New York City, he lay in state. Mourners poured in from across the country. President Grover Cleveland, ex-presidents, 20 state governors, ex-generals, ex-privates, they all came. The funeral was the most superb military and civil pageant in the nation's history. The procession, seven miles long and spanned five hours. It led to the Claremont section of Manhattan on Riverside Drive at 122nd Street. The man who, back in 1854, loaned U.S. Grant enough money to stay in New York City and get home to Galena after his resignation from the United States Army. The same man who surrendered to Grant after his first great victory, Fort Donaldson, Simon Bolivar Buckner, was there. So was the now commanding general of the Army, Philip Sheridan. Ex-Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston was in attendance, and so was one who had just retired from the United States Army one year earlier, William Sherman. Standing by the casket, his ally and friend cried. The man who created the stillness at Appomattox had been stilled. Twelve years later, on Saturday, April the 17th, 1897, Grant's remains were quietly transferred to an 8.5-ton red granite sarcophagus, which was then placed in the mausoleum of what today we refer to as Grant's tomb. The monument was dedicated 10 days later, on Tuesday, April 27th, with over a million in attendance and leading the procession, President William McKinley. The day was symbolically significant. It was the 75th anniversary of Grant's birth. To the site, Julia came to visit often. Once she emerged and literally bumped into a woman who moved forward and embraced the former First Lady. Softly, the stranger said, I am the wife of Jefferson Davis. Both returned often, together, united. Perhaps both noticed the simple four-word inscription cut into the granite. It was a line from his first inauguration, a sentiment, a wish, just as relevant and important now as then. Let us have peace. In our just-completed episode, we mentioned what may have been to some an unlikely association. One, a former general and president down on his luck and dying. The other, a sharp wit, a humorist, and one of the country's greatest writers. Both distinctly American. Next time we gather, we'll tell the remarkable story of the connection and friendship between U.S. Grant and Mark Twain. I hope you'll be with us. In your visit, I know you asked not to make a fuss. 
But your kind note and your kind donation merits a simple thank you. Glenn, you made Threads from the National Tapestry proud. Thank you. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Bob Grasser, Raleigh Civil War Roundtable's editor of the Knapsack Newsletter and the Roundtable's webmaster at RaleighCWRT.org. That's RaleighCWRT.org.